Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. Homes.com offers in-depth neighborhood guides with detailed video overviews, comprehensive narratives, and unbiased information from a multitude of sources. You thought we go in-depth with player analysis on Fantasy Baseball today? You haven't seen anything yet. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood complete with a video guide. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. When looking at local schools, they offer test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. One, one pitch. Fastball pulled and Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where fantasy becomes reality. Now, here's Adam, Scott, Heath, and Chris. Welcome in. This is Fantasy Baseball Today. I'm Chris Welsh. That is Scott White. Yes, it is October, and you're dang right. We're talking about 2020 fantasy baseball because, yes, we're insane. Yes, we're crazy. <laughs> But we got a passion, and we got to feed it. We've got to feed yes. the need for fantasy baseball, and that's what we're doing here today. We've already dropped a catcher episode for you, so if you guys didn't get a chance to go listen to that, very, very good conversation. Also, a conversation about the position itself. Today, Scott White, we are going to talk mm. about a very meaty first base. Meaty. Is that the right a word? Lot of passion. Yeah. Meaty. I like, I like, I don't know why I brought passion up. Whenever somebody mentions passion, I think of like passion fruit. You know, I was thinking of or like box. strawberry passion awareness for Topia. I remember that. Well, you brought up passion. So I think you are the one that has the uh, the passion fruit on the mind. No, you brought up passion. I said meaty. And before you said passion. Oh, did I? Passion. Oh, I didn't you even hear passion. myself. I don't listen to like many people. I don't even listen to myself. OK, <laughs> I, I was thinking butcher box when I said meaty. You were thinking passion fruit. And that's yeah. OK. A very passionate position and a very meaty, lengthy first base, which even you know from top to bottom, I'm going down to like your 20, which that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be talking about Scott White's early top 20 first base ranks. There's a lot of good names in here. Not to be dismissive of the catcher position, though I think people now no. know my overall feelings on them long term. First base is not that position this year. So why don't you give us a first base primer for 2020? Oh, my goodness. I It looked like first base was going south at this time a year ago and uh, just getting outclassed outclassed by every other infield position except maybe second base, but it, it came roaring back with a vengeance here. Some uh, long-awaited breakthroughs finally happened, and some guys came out of nowhere. It, it, was, it was deep, and you know, it was a pain. It was painful having to narrow it down to 20, which is true of every single infield spot this year. You know, the advantage catcher has comparatively is that everybody's pretty much only going to draft one catcher and that's not true at any other position. There's always utility spot to fill or maybe even middle infield corner infield. So you need more of those 
non-catchers and uh there's plenty to go around though there definitely are uh some stuff we're going to be doing today i'd first tell you you guys can follow us on twitter at cbs scott white you can follow myself at is it the welsh you guys got any off-season questions that's what we're here we'll be talking about it lots of content going on through the rest of october we're going to be previewing every position for 2020 but also some things we might be referencing. I did some in this league mocks, but maybe more importantly, because uh, I'm not going to say it a million times when I say the aggregated list, I'm referring to the two early mock drafts, the number two early mock drafts. That's a hashtag that Justin Mason with the uh, TGFBI, they did uh, six drafts and it's got some aggregated content. We'll be referencing that because it's good early content that is relative to the conversation that we're having. But we let's get right into the actual conversation. Number one is a pretty easy one, and I don't think it's about so much the number of the first baseman he goes, because he should be, I would say, unanimously the number one first baseman. Maybe the more interesting conversation after you talk about how awesome he is, is where he goes in the first round and the overall position of him. Number one is Cody Bellinger, clearly, right, Scott? Yeah, number one's clearly Cody Bellinger. I think there might be some debate as to where within the top five players he goes. Yeah. Which he, he had the, a difference on mine and my ITL. He went seventh overall and he went ooh, fourth that's even lower. I know I was shocked at that one. And he went fourth overall in the two early mock that I actually did. And he had a, almost a similar high and low as far as their aggregated content for too early. He had a high of four and a low of eight. So you and I agree he's a top five, but that's actually not a consensus take going into next year. So I guess the knock on Bellinger, even though he hit 305 overall, over the final four months, the final two-thirds of the season, he hit 262, which would lead you to believe he was falling back into those old habits and that maybe the breakthrough season wasn't as big of a breakthrough as the overall numbers make it out to be. But it's really the strikeout rate was so great so greatly improved for him. And that was true from start to finish, even during that stretch where he was hitting 262. Some of the hardest contact of any hitter. Expected batting average for the year was actually higher than the 305 mark he had. I, I think he had some bad Babbitt luck over those final four months, just a 262 Babbitt. And that the Cody Bellinger we saw early on, the one who was delivering in batting average, is actually the truer form. Meanwhile... Obviously, you can count on a ton of home runs, even some steals. He ended up having, what, 15, 15. steals on the year? He finished the year, a phenomenal year, 121 runs, 47 RBIs, 115, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 47 homers, 115 RBIs, 15 stolen bases with a 305 average. And just to piggyback off what you said, by the way, real quick, with Bellinger, there was a lot of... Um, Jose Ramirez comps. Everybody thinks they've got that locked in. If a, Apparently, if a guy struggles in the second half after being amazing, they're called Jose Ramirez. But to <laughs> re-piggyback off what you were saying, which is interesting, is you know through his major league career, he's been like a, a, a averages out to about a 25% K guy. I believe in 2017, it was, yeah, it's 26.6% strikeout. 23.9, he cut it down to an 18 but he finished with a 16.4% K rate this past 2019 season. But that second half you're talking about, even though the batting average went down and there were some struggles, his K rate went from, I think it was 14% in the first half to only 18.3% in the second half. Right. So even when he so struggled, great. he didn't go over 20%. So I think yeah. it's a little, it's over-exaggerated the struggle he had in the second half. 
Yeah, I think this is one of those situations where the full season numbers are a greater representation of who a player is than any any way you want to break the season up. I completely agree with that. And like we said before, the more fun conversation, there's two pieces of the fun conversation is, you know, is regression into the future? You know, will he come off of this incredible season? And then where does he go into the first round? It, I guess it, I guess it's safe to say it's a top eight. I think Scott and I are two people that would say top five. I'm a top four guy for Cody Bellinger. Now, number two, though, is someone I'm very intrigued with and I want to give a lot more push to this coming season. So talk to me about number two on the first base ranks. So when I wrote this article for first baseman, Freddie Freeman seemed like a lock for a 300 batting average and 40 homers. He didn't quite get either. Finished at 295 with 38, which had to do with him dealing with loose bodies in his elbow. He struggled down the stretch, ended up missing a lot of time down the stretch, and uh, it led to a worse batting line than we thought we were going to have. And yet it was still an amazing batting line. Uh, I think he is one of the safest bets for batting average of any player in baseball because he is like the he, he's like the best line drive hitter consistently either at the very top in line drive rate or in the top five year after year after year. And the power boost he saw this year, I mean, it's basically three of the past four years now when he's been that caliber of power hitter. He's missed time with injuries that prevented him from approaching the 40 homer threshold, but he's been basically a 40 homer guy now for three of the past four seasons. And it's just very safe. I think an easy pick in the first round if you just don't want anything to worry about. I could I couldn't agree more. That was actually my take as you were saying like he's a safe batting average or you know however you're replacing it. I'd say well he's just the safe option. I'm not sure the first round isn't the place to take some risk, you know, because you have a you have a a big draft and a long draft to make sure the whole team is constructed right. What is so great about fantasy baseball is it's not the sport where if you mess up in your first round the whole thing is over where like that can be the case for fantasy football where it can be all over if you mess up in the first round. It's not necessarily the case. But if you wanted it to play safe while also just having great upside, a guy like Freddie Freeman is that 121 runs, 113, uh, or, I'm sorry, 121 RBIs, 113 runs with 38 homers with a 295 batting average, just missing which would have been three or four straight years of 300 average. He mm-hmm. is not only a safe guy, but he's just such a great pick. He went... Uh, where did he go? He went 11th overall in my ITL. He went six overall in my two early mock. So again, this, it's not even necessarily, is he number two though? I think there is a bigger question that popped up that number three over the last month of the season has made it a little bit more interesting. What do you think about Pete Alonso who comes in at number three to, do you think he's made this conversation around Freeman? a little bit more interesting because he broke the rookie record for homers? Or do you think there's still kind of a clear tiered gap of here's Bellinger, here's Freeman, now here's Pete Alonso? Yeah, I think Bellinger and Freeman are first rounders across the board. And no other first baseman is really worth considering in the first round. In fact, I wouldn't put Pete Alonso in my second round even, which is no knock on him. He's just kind of one dimensional in that he's going to hit a lot of home runs. Uh, yeah. I think with a decent batting average, three dimensional. I want to argue that three dimensional. He went uh, as a rookie. He had a hundred plus runs, a hundred and twenty RBIs, which I think that set him as a third best uh, first baseman in RBIs. More homers than anybody else. 
and the batting average was serviceable. So he's he's a three category stud. Category, yeah. yeah, three category stud with batting so, average that's you know it's, it's you can deal with it. Right. He's uh, you know I I think he's going to remain one of the biggest home run hitters in baseball and. There's n- never anything wrong with taking that guy. Um, By the way, I love your nickname for him as a as a dad who does stupid dad jokes. Uh, Pete the Bat for your Pete the Cat. It has yeah. stuck with me. I actually don't. I don't think I like the other ones. I think I'm going to stick with your Pete the Bat. All right, let's spread it. Let's, let's just put white socks on him and uh, get a cartoon version of him up, right? Yeah, we can say things like groovy and groovy. Now, what is groovy? Is the range where he went, at least that I saw, in my ITL mock that we did, and I've got some breakdown of it. He was the 13th overall player. He was the wheel pick in our 12-man mock, yet he went in the fourth round of the two early mocks. Huge discrepancy. Mm-hmm. What I And, and the reason I'm bringing it up, we don't, we're not going to use the two early mocks and my stuff for a lot of this or you know a whole bunch more, but what's interesting is what he's done in the back half of the year. I feel like he's been so polarizing People don't want to believe. Yeah, he's the polarizing polar bear. I don't know if people can fully buy in. What what I'm getting at is like, I think where Bellinger and Freeman are locked first rounders, Pete Alonso has a early second to late third range, which is, I think, wild for anybody in the top three rounds to have that much of of an ability to be drafted. I don't know where it's going to settle. My gut tells me, Scott, He's going to uh-huh. settle in a majority of formats in the back half of the second round. I think he's going to be a wheel pick in the second round for most people. Yeah. Um, I I think your ITL mock where he went 13th overall is looking like the outlier here because in the two early mock drafts, TOO early mock drafts, where there were six of them. Yes. The earliest he went in any of those six was 34th overall, so late third rounder in a 12-team league. Agreed. And on average, he was the 46th player taken, so that's actually a late fourth rounder, which is too late for me. I think the third round range is more appropriate, but I, I can't see him climbing into the second round. I think I just think there are too many hitters who help in a wider variety of ways or help at weaker positions or whatever. They, I mean... I think Pete Alonso is great. Two, 260 batting average, 50 theory home runs. Like I, I think he could do that again, but I, I think that's as good as he gets too. I think know? he's going to be treated like, like Giancarlo Stanton in the good Giancarlo Stanton years. That's why I say, yeah. I think a guy in the top three picks, I mean, maybe you would take Cody Bellinger. You're not going to take Pete Alonso, but you, if you go and get a Ronald Acuna or you get a Mike Trout with the third pick, I think someone on the wheel of the second round is going to look and they're going to say, well, I want to get the 50-plus homers with the three-category stud because I have a pick coming back. That's why I think it can reach. I agree my stuff was an outlier, but I think early third to late second is where he's going to settle once we get into 2020. Right now, all the data shows us that he's maybe in the late third-round range. He's a player, I'm just telling people, he's your third first baseman. I think he's going to adjust by the time the drafts come because people are going to want that elite power. We'll see. Okay. We'll see about that. Okay. Well, we'll see. We'll put it down as a bet. We'll go check it out. <laughs> hey, this episode is brought to you by SeatGeek. SeatGeek promo code FANTASY. If you're searching for sporting events, live music, or comedy, it's never been easier with the SeatGeek app. SeatGeek breaks down the details of your venue. Green dots mean good deals. Red dots 
They're for the overpriced one. And every purchase is fully guaranteed so you can shop for tickets with confidence. I've got the SeatGeek app. Anytime I'm thinking about going out to any of the events, I don't want to mess with going on any of the websites and trying to deal with all of the hassle when I've got it right on my phone. Couple clicks, find the best deal, boom, bang, I'm all set up. Plus, if you aren't set up, SeatGeek wants to hook you up right now. They're going to give you $10 off your first SeatGeek purchase. All you've got to do is use our promo code. Download the app now and use promo code FANTASY. You're going to get $10 off your first purchase. That's promo code FANTASY, $10 off your first purchase. Now, we've moved into what is most likely, I mean, I I would say a relatively aggressive tier change. But maybe you don't agree. Maybe the guys that are going to come in at four and five are closer to Pete Alonzo than I'm giving credit for. So talk to me about four and five. Four is Josh Bell. I'm sorry. Four is Anthony Rizzo. (laughs) I just spoiled number five. Oh, there you go. Four is Anthony Rizzo. And he's an interesting one because it's now two years in a row where his power numbers have fallen while the rest of the leagues have gone up. And that's concerning. That's a concerning development. And yet, I still have trouble ranking him any lower than this because he is just so safe. He's a stud. He's been a stud for half a decade, right? And you you just draft him, and you, you don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to deliver stud numbers. He is. It's just where he falls within the studs that uh, that's really in dispute here. And, you know, somebody like Josh Bell, who I rank behind him, could finish ahead of him again. I'm, or, I gotta tell you, I'm, I'm torn on Anthony Rizzo, man, because you're not wrong. He is consistent. But I look at the price that's still being paid for him, and the, it's going to kind of turn into a little bit of a catchery conversation here. Where I look at the price, and he's going mm-hmm. in the middle of what is it, the fourth, early fourth round, somewhere in that range. And I'm not saying that's horrible. That's a better price than we probably paid for Rizzo in a, in a little while. But then you look at some of the names that are behind him. There are guys that had. I don't want to like ruin you know the conversation that we're having here, but there's guys that had phenomenal years that people haven't bought into that have really low ADPs. There's players that have kind of had that like, wow, this is a almost first round talent that had down years that their value has taken a multi-round hit. I don't think I'm going to have shares of Anthony Rizzo just due to cost to production because I don't. I just don't think his production warrants a top four round pick comparative to what the rest of the first base eligible guys did. I mean, Yuli Gurriel who we'll probably talk about, was a player that was drafted post-200 this year, and he beat him in almost every single category. The only category that uh, Rizzo won was runs by four. Yeah, and that's... I I don't think I totally disagree with you there. I'm probably not going to have many shares in Rizzo either if that's where he ends up going. He is safe, though. He is safe, Wait for Bell, but, you know, if if I was having a two-player draft and it was... The only two available players were Rizzo and Bell. I would take Rizzo. I, it's easy to fixate on just the home run number, which has been a little disappointing the past two years. But he's such a good plate discipline guy that you know the runs are going to be there. Uh, he pro, he projects for a high batting average, which he finally delivered on with a two ninety three mark this year. In theory, he's good at four categories. Is he great at home runs? No, but he's still good at them. And good at batting average, good at RBI and runs. And, uh, you know, good health would obviously help. He didn't really have that in the second half this year. But 
I, it, you don't have to worry about whether or not he's going to produce. He is. That's, that's really what sets him apart. Uh, if you're going the upside route, I could understand ranking him lower. But do you have to worry about a guy like Josh Bell in the second half, which that will be 1,000. If you want to talk about top 10 narratives for fantasy baseball conversation in 2020, I'm going to do a podcast on that. Top 10 narratives of conversation inside that top 10 will be Josh Bell's second half versus his first half. Is he trustable after a phenomenal, like, you know, broad look, the macro perspective of him? 37 homers, 160 RB, 116 RBIs looks great. But when you start to get micro, you look at the second half, people are going to pick apart. So is do you trust him? Well, speaking to the macro, in terms of head-to-head points per game, he was actually better than my number three, Pete Alonso, this past year. So that tells you how good the overall numbers were. Now, a lot of that was a plate discipline thing. And I would I, I think Alonso did come out ahead in, in traditional roto leagues. But nonetheless, it was... He was on that level of production, Josh Bell. I do think maybe the decline was overstated. Uh, you know, a lot of it was in June and July, and then he bounced back with eight home runs in August. Didn't play much in September, was injured. The batting average didn't really bounce back. He was a 300 hitter in the first half, and he was, uh, let's see, a 261 with those eight home runs in August. But yeah, he had a productive month of August. And. The plate discipline is so good that I, I I think there's a high floor with the batting average. I don't know if he's really as good as a 300 hitter. The supporting numbers when he was doing that in terms of like X batting average, X WOBA, they, they pretty much backed up what he was doing, the cal- caliber of contact he was making. So I'm more in the side on the side of trusting Josh Bell, though obviously. You know, I'm I'm a little more concerned about it than I was on July 1st. And I think I'm with you. I think I'm going to side a little bit more on the trust factor, especially because there was a time where Josh Bell was looking like he was going to be a second round pick coming into 2020. Right. And now you're right. going to probably be able to get him in the fifth or even as low as, you know, into the 80s where he was going in the two early mocks, which is interesting. Now, I'm not I'm not pairing these guys out just to like get through them, but I, I want to talk about the next four. I'm going to list them for you and get your takes on all these players. You know, feel free to say what you need to, but because of what I said about a guy like Anthony Rizzo, where I look at him and I say, okay, he's fine. He's safe. That's great. But there are options that are cheaper. The next four are prime examples of this. Number six being the very specific one of DJ LeMahieu, who came in at number nine as far as first baseman went at 76. Or I believe 78 was his, uh, or no, I'm sorry, 90 was his ADP in the two early mocks. He's your number six guy, Max Muncy, uh, multi-position type of guy, Matt Olson, who I absolutely love, and one I talked about a lot with you when I could. Carlos Santana comes in as your ninth first baseman. Those are four really great options that are going to have somewhere from probably a 90 to 130 type of an ADP next year. And that that's kind of the reason why I don't think I can get down with guys like Anthony Rizzo who aren't producing at elite levels and maybe a few other guys we're going to talk about. So talk to me about Carlos Santana, Olsen, Muncy, and DJ LeMahieu. Yeah, well, this, is a, this is a big chunk to bite off here. <laughs> And we're going to have a lot of opportunities to talk about LeMahieu because he's eligible at so many positions. Sure. But to to directly address the Rizzo comparison, I would say LeMahieu is the only one I trust to meet or exceed his batting average. And I think guys like Muncy 
and Santana, probably even Olsen, are going to fall well short. So that's of their that's own part of batting the average from this previous season, or you mean Rizzo's? Rizzo's. Okay, I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, Lemayhu's going to be the only one in the same range there. You know, sometimes Rizzo's underachieved with the batting average, so you got to factor that in too, I guess. But Lemayhu is one of those guys who I feel like I'm going to be higher on than the industry. You mentioned how low he went. In all of those mocks, I was stunned at how low he went, particularly because he's second base eligible. That's the weakest of the infield spots. 107th in the draft I was in. 107th overall. Yeah, it was 87th on average is where he went, which is we're talking about an eighth round pick in a 12 team league. It's amazing because, you know, obviously he's in the MVP discussion for the AL. He had a career best season. And I think it's just. It's um, I don't know, I. I tend to give more credit to the surprising season than the industry as a whole does. And, you know, obviously if there were red flags there, I would acknowledge those. In LeMahieu's case, there really isn't. Like, everything he did in terms of batted balls, everything he did in terms of stats was backed up by the batted balls. Like, the career-high home run total, uh, the batting average being 327 for the year. He was legitimately that good in terms of you know, quality of contact. It's just that it came after leaving Coors Field, which was surprising. It came when he's on the wrong side of 30, doesn't have a great track record of this. And so I think he's being downgraded because of that. I think he deserves to be somewhat. That's why I only rank him sixth. I mean, he was in the MVP discussion, right? Like he's was top 10 hitter in the game. And he's also one of these year. guys, too, that I, I know some people roll their eyes when this starts to come up, but he's one of those guys that you could look at and you go, well, position eligibility is a bonus. He gets the bonus for being eligible across the board. There's so much flexibility with really what were elite numbers and what's the reason he's going to cool down. And it's it's a consideration to have. I, I'm in total agreement with you here. I think I'm going to be higher than probably the industry standard. I don't know if I'll beat you because I think you're going to be highly up there. But I think he's a player that in every single format, he's actually worth reaching for. I would rather, we had that catcher conversation where people are taking Romuto or Gary Sanchez. I'd rather be having DJ LeMayhew 10 out of 10 times. Yeah. I mean, batting average is a category you have to address early. That's not one well, you're going to be able you punt to fix late. There's, there's, there's a concerted um, effort to punting average in 2019, I felt like, from uh, some industry uh, conversations. Yeah, I, I'm just putting I that. Mean, I'm just throwing it out there. I know. It's okay, like unless you punt it, it wouldn't be my choice. Well, it's never my choice to punt on anything. But, yeah, it just yeah. I think like like um, I had a conversation with Justin Mason about it, and Justin was uh, kind of at the forefront of it as well. Where you talk about that batting average, and a lot of people where batting average might be the one that you can get away with. It's it's the easiest one to punt and get away with while dominating the rest of the categories. But that tended to kind of fall around guys like Joey Gallo, where there, but there's also been an uptick of high power guys that are actually having better batting averages in the 220s. You know, we don't have the including doors in the gallows. Joey Gallo. Including Joey Gallo. That's exactly <laughs> the point. So it's it might yeah. be that might conversation might be a little bit lost. Uh any other nuggets on Muncie Olson or Santana that's important to you because uh number 10 is a very important conversation I think here. But I don't want to skip past if you had something important you needed to hit. Uh I will Mentioned Muncie's also eligible at second base, so that's probably what you're going to draft him to play. Olsen, uh, I, I think people need to take a long look at his numbers because he was the he was the one who surprised me the most when I was doing this, just how good of a season he was having and how much improvement he was showing as an all-around hitter. I may have him too low at eighth overall, 
Carlos Santana just had a career year at age 33. And some of the reasons I think he had that career year in terms of lowering his number of fly balls to boost his batting average, that kind of started to normalize down the stretch. And plus, anytime somebody has a career year at age 33, I think that's cause for skepticism. So I, I have him ninth. I, if it's strictly a points league, the walks to strikeout, the walk to strikeout ratio is so good that you move him up probably to like fifth or sixth at the position. But yeah, I, I still see him as probably being more like a 250 hitter. And in that case, it's going to drop him a few spots in five by five leagues that count batting average. Number 10, Paul Goldschmidt, the mighty have fallen. This is not, um, th- this is probably going to be one of maybe your bigger differences in industry, at least early on. Too early, he went as the sixth first baseman, around 60, uh, 65, somewhere in that range. You have him as the 10th first baseman. In my league, he went in the fifth, the ITL mock. Uh, I'm sorry, he, yeah, he went in the fifth round and was the fifth first baseman in both my ITL and the too early mock here. He had a little bit of improvement in the second half. Power was up based on games. Uh, batting average, you know, 254 to 267. Couple more stolen bases. He's just not the same player that he was in past years, which is like a no-brainer. That's not even part of the conversation. But his discount is so high at this point that he's very intriguing to me, especially when you come back and compare him to this Rizzo conversation. But you seem to be relatively out. Is this from a points-based type of conversation, or is this an overall that you know Paul Goldschmidt's output will nothing will come close to or will not come close to resembling anything he was in the past? It's a complicated topic because I felt like I was giving him more credit than he deserved by ranking him 10th. Uh, points league evaluation is factoring into it. That's that's where I want to start with it because he averaged only 2.9 points per game this year. Some players who had more than that. D.D. Gregorius, Shin Su Chu, Hunter Dozier, Brett Gardner, Corey Seager, who obviously didn't have a good year, David Dahl, uh, Kevin Biggio, they all had more head-to-head points per game than Goldschmidt this year. And that's obviously just a partial list. He was not very high. (laughs) Some of the players I ranked behind him at first base had many more, most notably Yuli Gurriel. But it does get to be a little closer if you're talking about a 5x5 format. I mean, he hit 260 with 34 homers, 97 runs, 97 RBI. Doesn't run at all anymore. So that obviously takes a lot of the old appeal out of there. To me, it mostly falls on what kind of batting average you expect him to deliver now. Because he still has power. He still gets on base a decent amount. Do you think Babbitt comes into play here? I mean, it could be as simple as an Arizona to St. Louis conversation, but he dropped by about 50 Babbitt points from his career average across every year with the Diamondbacks, you know, 359 in 2018 down to 303. I mean, is there a luck factor you look in or do you say diminishing age, not in Arizona, hitter friendly, and all of those things play into it? Because I think there's there's a sector of people that are going to give him a pass for this past year because he's been so productive for so long. I actually think where we're looking at him and you're saying, I thought I was being generous at 10, I think people are going to reach once 
you know, the Anthony Rizzo's go and the Josh Bells, I think people are going to feel a little bit of a panic because they're going to want to take that risk that he can reproduce or regain what he once was. And it doesn't sound like you believe that that is a possibility anymore. I think it's a possibility. It's just too optimistic for me. The positive side for Paul Goldschmidt is that the batter ball profile, and by that I'm referring to the exit velocity, if you're looking at StatCast at a hard hit rate, if you're looking at fan graphs, line drive rate, strikeout rate, they were largely unchanged from a year ago. Uh, if you want to say it's an Arizona thing, that makes it really hard to explain what happened in 2018, which just was just a weird year all around where he was a monster on the road, uh, but not so much at Home. I mean, humidor. Humidor would be a factor for 2018. That was a that was a right. Major but change, so why right? was he? If it was an Arizona thing where he always managed to have that high BABIP in Arizona, why was he so great on the road last year? And maybe that was just a total fluke. I don't know. He's he had always been a high BABIP guy in Arizona. Was it because of Arizona? I don't know. The batter ball profile, like I said, was basically the same. So maybe he just had a really unlucky year. But considering he's going to be, well, he's 32 now. Um, I I don't think there's a strong enough reason to think he's going to bounce back at that age for me to want to take the chance on it. And, you know, the guy he was this year, 260 hitter with 30 home runs, a decent on-base percentage. I mean, that's basically Carlos Santana, right, who I rank him one spot behind. Yeah, It's basically Max Muncy, except Muncy's second base eligible. And both Santana and Muncy, I think, get on base more than Goldschmidt does. So it's pretty... Pretty close, but I, I think they're just better in terms of skills. So, yeah, you're really banking on a turnaround for Goldschmidt because if he just repeats this season, then he probably is about where I rank him. A fascinating debate. People know I wrote a debate book last year with baseball would be for this coming season, DJ LeMayhew versus Paul Goldschmidt, the, the believer in what has been done in New York to the belief in the returned value. It's a conversation we'll probably have a lot about with Paul Goldschmidt because this is a little bit of an industry difference. We have got a lot more to cover, but first we got to tell you about our friends over at ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe El Tura's COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. So you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash strike. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-T-R-I-K-E, ZipRecruiter.com slash strike. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now, first base moves into an interesting territory Give me 11 through 15, and obviously where, you know, 11 is a completely fascinating conversation for me, but let's go 11 through 15 and give me, you know, your focus points here on these guys. Okay, so some big names here that we're going to have to speed through. 11 is Reese Hoskins. Yeah. 12, mm-hmm. Yuli Gurriel. 13, Jose Abreu. And 14 is Trey Mancini. Is that where I'm stopping? 14? I'll uh, go to 15. 
Edwin Encarnacion. I liked how Jose Abreu was. You were you, you Ron Burgundy'd it. You were like Jose Abreu. You put a question <laughs> at the end of it. So Reese Hoskins, start there because, as you said, big names. He's interesting. This is another people can't quit Reese Hoskins. Yeah, I get it. It was so much fun when he got called up. What the August before last. August 2017, and just had that home run binge. And oh my goodness, Reese Hoskins is saving our lives. But you know, really the past two years, his first two full years in the majors, he's shown the same issue, and that that's that he's so sold out for power. He's pretty much condemned to a low Babbitt, which really hurts his batting average. And over the final four months, so that would be the final two-thirds of 2019, he's basically a 200 hitter. Reese Hoskins. Good power, sure. And in points leagues, the fact he walks so much really saves him. But he's kind of like an extreme version of Carlos Santana. And um, that makes him a worse version of Carlos Santana. And Carlos Santana, apart from this year, was pretty fringy as a 5 by 5 player. Much better in points leagues, but pretty fringy in 5 by 5 I think that's about where we are with Hoskins. This is kind of... Uh, kind of giving him more credit than maybe even the numbers suggest he should have. And Hoskins went as the seventh first baseman in the two early mocks, which is aggressively heavier or higher than Carlos Santana, who is 12. Hoskins went above Muncie, LeMahieu, Olsen, Abreu, and Santana, all guys we've talked about. That's how high Hoskins' value is still. There's a perceived value that follows Reese Hoskins. I will tell you this. I'm not interested I don't think I'll have shares. Guys, I won't have shares of next year. Probably Rizzo and guys like Hoskins. You laid out all the great points. Why take a Hoskins when you can get a Carlos Santana for a cheaper price? Doesn't make sense. Exactly. And and I mean, the thing is, like, if you're talking strictly 5x5, five five, standard 5x5 five five leagues, it's you're just getting home runs from him. And home runs are everywhere. So I don't really... I don't really see the point there. And just if I can throw this... This isn't even a fantasy-relevant stat, but it's kind of a fun way to sum up the way... Hoskins' career has gone so far. His first year, 2017, when he played just 50 games for the Phillies, he had a war, according to baseball reference, of two, right? $16 million right there. Two combined years since then. Full seasons, not just 50 games, but a full 2018 season, a full 2019 season. His combined war for those two seasons is two. Mm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, not good. Sixty, yeah, not good. not good. Sixteen million dollars. That's it for the two seasons. The yep. aggregated amount that contracts use off of now. Uh, play in a war league. Do you ever play in a war league? By the way, no. People do. No, well, that, I, that seems like not a good use of war. It seems like not the an worst, appropriate use of war. It seems like the worst idea ever. But it is. It's one of our favorite things to do whenever people go. Again, you preface it by the way. I'm not picking on you, but you. We're just talking about war in a non fantasy context. Yeah. My favorite thing is when people like to throw war in the fantasy context, and and I get to go. Yeah, you play in a lot of war leagues, huh? A lot of war leagues for that <laughs> player, huh? Okay. Um, anything right. on Guriel, huge boost to the season. Abreu used to be one of those constant first basemen. You miss out on all the guys. You get Abreu and you get solid numbers. Mancini bust on the scene. And um, E5 just is an absolute constant across the board. Is there anything, anything noteworthy or exciting about any of these first basemen? I don't know if exciting is a word, but you know, targetable in drafts that you're going to have for any of those guys? I really like Trey Mancini. I'm just going to put that out there. I, I don't think he's getting enough love in these early mock drafts. 
my ranking of 14th at first baseman at, at first base. Um, you know, kind of the guys I have going before and after him are going much earlier in these early mock drafts. I don't think I said that right, but you know, Mancini was 127th overall in the six two early mocks. And so that translates to an, like an 11th round pick for a guy who hit 295 with 35 home runs this past year. And I think it was believable. Yeah, I think he's good. The one I'm most questioning in this range is the guy I have two spots ahead of him, Yuli Gurriel, who I have 12th overall. It was Hoskins, 11th, Gurriel, 12th, Abreu, 13th, Mancini, 14th. Just to remind you, Gurriel, 12th. I'm not feeling great about that. It's hard to buy. It's hard to believe. Yeah, I look at I it, mean, too, and I have a hard time it. believing. The numbers support it, but... I, I just think when push comes to shove, if I'm faced with the prospect of drafting him there, I'm not really going to do it. Uh, but the numbers certainly justify it. I mean, particularly in a points league context, as little as he strikes out, he was a stud this year, a complete stud with that power breakthrough in the second half. So, I mean, second half, I mean, he the second half alone, you know, we get into that conversation we had a couple weeks ago where it was like, you know, who are the league winners? Guriel is like a second half league winner type of guy because he still might have mm-hmm. been sitting out on the scrap heap. You know, as the rookies were coming and people are anticipating a guy like Kyle Tucker coming up, Yuli Gurriel just continued to rock, and uh, it's a phenomenal second half. If the cost, if you start to have to pay for the 2019 production, that's where I'll check out. And, and what I mean yeah. by that is, like, he had a high of 111 in the two early mocks. One person took him 111 overall. I'll pass on that. But if he evens out in the 150 range, I prefer him to, you know, I prefer him probably to a guy like Hunter Dozier or some guys that are behind him that people might get super excited about. Uh, so I'm in agreement with you. What does, are any other guys here? I don't mean to jump past it. Any no, other? go ahead. We'll okay. Keep going. What do, uh, what does 16 through 20 look like? This ends out the top 20 tier here. And you got some interesting names in here because it leaves out just as a little teaser. I think it leaves out some names people might be waiting for. And you went with some good breakout guys or some potential breakout guys from 19 that could carry over to 20. So uh, 16 to yeah. 20, what do you got? Well, it leaves out Hunter Dozier for one. That it was does. the toughest one. Uh, the, the one I had the hardest time leaving out, but probably not even who you were referring to. Okay, so 16th is Luke Voigt. Not sure how I feel about that now based Agreed. on the way September played out. But that's, that's, that's going to be a question that lingers all offseason. 17 is Yandy Diaz, 18, Christian Walker, 19, CJ Crone, whose numbers are better than I think he gets credit for, and number 20, a breakout candidate, Nate Lowe of the Rays, who I am presuming will have the inside track on the starting job. Maybe not. They really stuck to playing G-Man Choi this year, but we'll see. I love the Nate Lowe one, but obviously, you know, Christian Walker's of interest to me. This was interesting. This is from Mike Patrillo, I believe is how you say his name. And in a comparison of the two seasons, Christian Walker, a 259 average, 348 OVP, and a 476 slugging. Paul Goldschmidt, 260 average, 346 OVP, 476 slugging. That is almost identical. They had the same <laughs> WOBA, 346. They had the same walk percentage, 11. The K rate was only 2% better from Goldschmidt, 24 to 26. And they were literally within 0.001 of each other in ISO, a 216 to 217. Walker and Goldschmidt were identical players 
in 2019. Yet Christian yep. Walker is going to go no less than a hundred spots lower, if not further back. He ended up being the 26 first baseman taken in the two early mocks, and his ADP was 212, identical to Paul Goldschmidt. Yeah, it's amazing the way that played out. Really is because Christian Walker was a guy who he looked like he was just gonna be a minor league journeyman. He was a quad right? A guy. Like, he was a quad A guy. He was like yeah, 26, 27-year-old yeah. hitting bombs in uh, the PCL. Everyone's like, big deal. Yeah, just never got his chance. And then finally the, you know, it wasn't even lined up to get his chance this year. It's just Jake Lamb got hurt at the start of the year, so there was an opening. Oh, let's give this Christian Walker guy a shot. And he kept it all year, and that was even with Kevin Crone, CJ Crone's brother, putting up huge numbers at AAA you know, he got a taste of the majors, and I think a lot of people were speculating he'd overtake Christian Walker. It never happened. And I think a lot of that was assumption because if Christian Walker can do it at AAA, look at what Crone is doing in AAA. Let's put him right. in here. Let's get those power numbers in there. It wasn't giving the benefit of the doubt that, you know, Christian Walker is an actual major league bat. And across the board, a completely unheralded season of 29 homers, 86 runs. He had eight stolen bases as well. Average is nothing to you know, to freak out about. But if you want to compare him to a guy like, let's say, Matt Olson, Matt Olson had, did have seven more homers, but they're both kind of flipped between runs and RBIs, and their batting averages within 10 spots of each other. So Christian Walker is a post-200 bat. It's the reason why you can get late power. That is absolutely a 30 potential homer guy that you're going to get post-150. I'm all about that. He hits the ball really hard, too. Top 15 hard hit rate, according to Fangraphs, one spot ahead of Ronald Acuna. Mm. And that's the main thing he has going for him, but he doesn't have like a crazy high strikeout rate or crazy high fly ball rate or, you know, he even goes the opposite way a little bit. Like it's just a solid all around hitting profile. And in this environment, there's, you know, he's he's able to send enough balls over the fence to make an impact in fantasy. I think he's underrated. There There is going to be the threat of Kevin Crone still next year, and Christian Walker will have to come through again, but there's nothing in his line to leave me to believe he won't. Lowe's one of those guys, like we talked about with Catcher. Um, these are just any last thoughts on these guys. Lowe's got the upside, and you talked about guys like Sean Murphy and Francisco Mejia late that are interesting buys on. Nate Lowe's one of those guys that, Maybe like Christian Walker, but a better average, a higher OBP type of a player that if you put in the middle of the Rays lineup, could do some serious damage next year. I think I, I actually, love I think I like he, Lowe more than a couple guys you have above, like Voight and his teammate Yandy Diaz. I think I'll be a little bit more aggressive on Lowe this year. Yeah, skills-wise, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I mean, I I think you can make some interesting comparisons between Nate Lowe and like a Paul Goldschmidt when he was coming up. That's That's a great one. Yeah, good call. So I, I think there's a ton of upside there for him to be a great source of not just power, but batting average as well. Um, but, you know, obviously the Rays have a lot of a lot of different guys they like to move in and out of the lineup. And is he going to be able to pull away from that group? That's really my main concern with him. But Luke Voigt, to your point, might now be in that situation for the Yankees because coming back from that, uh, that uh, um, sports hernia, just didn't look the same. And maybe it was because of the injuries and maybe the Yankees will give him a pass for that going into next year. But Mike Ford really start stepped up down the stretch. He, he has, I'm, he has an interesting batted ball profile himself. A guy who gets on, can get on base a lot. 
really all the things I was excited about for Luke Voigt heading into this year, you could say the same for Mike Ford now. It's like it's kind of like the meme of the, the you Spider-Man? know, the boyfriend eyeing the new girl. Like, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, for me, that's the new girl's uh, Mike Ford. The old one's Luke Voigt. Voigt's old news now. Come on, Greg Bird, though. Where's Greg Bird, Scott? Yeah, Greg Bird is... <laughs> I'm not a Greg Bird guy. You know, come on. I know, I know. I'm just teasing. It's a fun conversation. It's a great top 20. If you guys want to read all of the takes here, go and uh, find the article. It's the 2020 Ranks Preview. You can get it over on CBS. Also follow Scott on uh, CBS, Scott White on Twitter. You can find the links. That'll be tweeted out, and you'll see it from CBS and whatnot. But a nice early take for you guys to digest some of the first base, base ranks. But we are not done. We've got more coming up next week. What do we think? What do we hit? Should we hit second base and uh, shortstop next week? The middle infield? That's not the way I go. I go the way they're numbered. You know, I go second base, then third base, Let's then shortstop. I kind of like that. That's how I do it. But there, this is this is one of those like unspoken like disagreements within the it, like nobody ever talks about what order you're supposed to list the positions. It's just kind of this passive aggressive thing where mm-hmm. some people will do it one way. Others will do it another way. And everyone and just privates each other. Seething when uh, they see the other person do the opposite way, you know? And maybe that's, this is just Scott White talking, I think. I don't care yeah. how people, though I will tell you how I tend to do it is I like to do the corner infield together, middle infield together, but I'm so disrespectful to catchers. I'll just put them with closers. I'll just be like, we'll talk about catchers and closers in the same <laughs> conversation because who cares? Yeah. But uh, no, we'll do that. We're going to go second base and third base next week. A whole lot to cover there. Uh, love hearing from you guys. You guys got questions about some early 2020 stuff. You can email us if you'd like fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. We'll see if we can get any in, but I just want you guys to know that we got you through the entire month of October with all of these previews to get you guys a good primer through the end of the year, because there's going to be a whole bunch of content and lots and lots of stuff for you to digest. And what is going to be a very, very deep, deep fantasy draft this coming year as we have kind of previewed. So you guys know the drill. Thank you guys for tuning in. More coming up right here on Fantasy Baseball today in the coming weeks as we continue the 2020 Rank Series. You guys have a great weekend, and we'll be back with you for second base. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.